Hello. This week, we're standing back from the latest goings-on in public service broadcasting to take a more fundamental look at the nature of PSB. You may remember, a few weeks ago, I talked to Charles Moore, a man who might have become BBC chairman and who did become editor of both The Daily and Sunday Telegraph and is the official biographer of Margaret Thatcher. Lord Moore made clear that he thought the BBC was left-leaning, pro-Brexit and out of touch. This week... I'm talking to someone who has a very different perspective. Dr Tom Mills, a sociologist at Aston University, has written a book called The BBC, Myth of a Public Service. It claims to set aside both liberal and conservative fantasies about the institution and says that far from being a sanctuary for independent journalism, the BBC is in fact intimately connected to the power it is supposed to hold to account. Well, as someone who thought he was a pretty independent journalist when he worked for the BBC, I was keen to discuss Tom Mill's book with him. And now I can. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Can I start off first by asking you what you think of the case of Richard Sharp, the BBC chairman who was up in front of Parliament last week, of course. What do you think it says about his complex relationship with Number 10 and the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case, and, of course, the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson? Well, I think what we're we're looking at there is a story about a group of individuals that illustrates the broader point. It's not actually so unusual in the history of the BBC, but to me, the key here is that you have a figure who's part of the sort of circle of characters, if you like, around the Prime Minister at the time. It's part of the same world, part of the same sort of political and social milieu, who's been appointed to head an organisation which is supposed to hold the government to account. So, To me, it's revealing of an underlining constitutional problem, if you want to think about it in those terms, at the BBC. It illustrates that. Now, the business of the loan, I think, is that that's the sort of journalistic colour, which is the whole story is is circulating around. But I I wrote an article, actually, for The Guardian a, a couple of years ago about the original appointment of Richard Sharp commenting on these issues. And I think even at that stage, it was very clear that there were reasons to be concerned about the appointment from the perspective of the BBC's independence. Now, I think one thing it's, it's worth emphasising there is that this is an ongoing problem with the BBC. That, and I, I know you've discussed it on the, the podcast before, that if you have a figure at the top of the BBC who is appointed by government, then you have this inevitable conflict of interest. Well, except the assumption is they've got to be appointed in some way. The key thing is, do you believe that when they say on appointment, they put aside their party affiliations and they try to be as independent as possible. And there are a number of people who would say, there, I mean, of course, right-wingers say, for example, oh, the BBC chairman's gone native, etc. You don't mm. think it's possible for people to set aside their political views and act independently and impartially as chairman despite their backgrounds? Yeah, I'm, of course it's possible, in theory. I just I, That's not really what's happened in practice. And I think... The question I would say in response to that is if you wanted someone to be independent enough to hold a government to account, would the best process be for the government to make that appointment? Then you don't even have this sort of psychological question, which is like, is someone able to sort of set aside their background or some form of political partisanship or whatever in undertaking a new role? Hopefully so, right? But we're all dependent on our knowledge. We're all dependent on our understandings of issues. We're all dependent on a certain sort of network of people and information. So even if like, okay, on this this question of like partisanship, 
you know, we can trust people in certain roles to not pursue like very narrow kinds of interests. But then the question becomes, well, number one, is there a broader sort of social type or set of assumptions that they might bring with them that irrespective of their good faith might influence their judgment? Number two, how do we even know? Like we can sit here and we can guess as to what's going on in Richard Sharp's head. I think the key question is, do we want the BBC to be independent? If so, is it appropriate that the person who heads the BBC is appointed effectively by the Prime Minister? I think the answer to that has to be no. But you don't think the BBC is independent because the book that you wrote called uh, The BBC Myth of a Public Service uh, makes that pretty clear. Why did you say it was a myth? Well, we were talking before we went on air about people giving titles to newspaper articles. And actually, as it happens, I didn't <laughs> I didn't come up with the title of the book. That was my publisher. You're not going to disavow it, though, are you? I'm not going to disavow it. I think it's fine. Because I, I, you've, talked, you've talked elsewhere, you've talked elsewhere of the BBC's fabled impartiality was ever only an elite consensus. Yeah, yeah, that's correct, um, yeah. I know, I'm, to be clear, I'm not disavowing the title of the book. I'm just saying it, it's not capturing exactly what, what the thrust of my argument is about the BBC, which is actually closer to what, what you just said, which is that, number one, the BBC... So here, here's the sort of thesis of the book, if you like. Number one, the BBC isn't genuinely independent in any sort of um, substantive sense. It really occupies a sort of grey area between genuine independence and, let's say, what we tend to call like a state broadcaster or a government broadcaster. It's always, it's always occupied that kind of grey area. Number two, because of that lack of independence, that has an influence on the BBC's ability to report impartially. So I think what the evidence tells us is like, number one, the BBC isn't genuinely independent in the way that people often describe it. Number two, it doesn't, on key issues, tend to report impartially. Well, let's take the first point, which is, is it uh, independent? I agree with you that the BBC has freedom under licence. It needs the licence. It's got a dog licence, as it were. And it goes back to government either for more money or for a charter the right to publish. And when it was the sole broadcaster, uh, when there wasn't an ITV or anything like that, it was clearly at a very short arm's length from government. And you show in your book historical examples where actually it wasn't even half an arm, it was a wrist at the most. However, once you get ITV and Channel 4 coming along, and certainly now in a, a different area, different period where there are many more channels, it's surely much easier for the BBC to be independent than it was before. Independent on licence, it needs the money, but surely now it's easier for the BBC to be independent. Why do you think that? Why do you think more broadcasters would create more independence? Well, I think, for example, the just rivalry when I was doing editing Panorama, whatever, I was a rival, I wanted to see what World in Action was doing and uh, to compete with it. When Channel 4 came along, I wanted to compete with that. Mm-hmm. So you got competition within the public service area and we try and break stories and do difficult stories. And that sort of competition was clearly healthy. Monopoly on the whole isn't. Yeah. Okay, so I'd say a couple of things. Maybe we can come back to the question of like whether competition impacts on independence because it's not clear to me what, why it would. Yeah, I agree. Like the arrival of um, competition within a strongly regulated public service system can clearly have a, a positive impact. I mean, it, I think the record's pretty clear, for example, as you say, on the arrival of ITN as not, and its development of current affairs, but also the arrival of Channel 4 and certain kinds of innovative program making, which pushed the BBC in various ways and, and shook up its more kind of establishment orientation. I think the difference there is that you have a sort of professional competition, right? You're not competing economically, and that's slightly different. So economic competition can create 
different kinds of pressures than com- competing over, say, the quality of your journalism or the quality of your programming. So I think... Yes, but surely the difference was, certainly with Channel 4 in its early years, ITV and BBC, is the income actually was guaranteed virtually, not quite the case with Channel 4. And therefore, you were not pitching programmes based on their popularity or the revenue that they would return, partly because of public regulation. You were pitching programmes, the primary concern was journalistic now, that's more difficult. And I wonder, when you're talking, therefore, about the BBC as a whole, the myth of public service, whether you are confusing in some ways the claims for complete freedom and independence, which some make, which are clearly not the case, and a situation where actually the workforce, the journalists and others, are far more independent than you might assume from reading what their bosses say. I mean, you know, it's full. The World Service is full of people trying to report honestly on the world. The BBC News is full of people trying to report honestly, and the and the reservations about their reporting are more about unconscious bias rather than any form of conscious bias or any form of censorship imposed from the top. The BBC is a, a quite large organisation, and I've n- I never claimed that the journalists report dishonestly or that they are being censored from above or anything of that nature. The question is, are journalists influenced by the context in which they report and the kinds of organisational structures within which they work? And I don't, don't think anybody doubts that. So therefore, the question becomes, well, what kind of organisational culture is created in an organisation where the people at the top are appointed by the BBC? Now, we can see this play out historically quite clearly, because when you get changes in leadership, in order to change the way journalism is undertaken, in order to shift the organisational culture, it takes quite a lot of work. So Bert... This is John Burt, the Director General in the late 1990s, yes. Yeah, and years of work to try and shift the organisational culture of the BBC. So the picture I create, I paint in the book, which is all based not on my research, but also uses an extensive body of research from uh, sociologists, other sociologists who've worked on the BBC previously, isn't concerned with journalists having their arms sort of twisted by the uh, politicians or the people who represent them on the board. It's just simply a question of how does a particular organisational culture get created? What are the social processes that lead to an organisation reporting a certain way? Now, in terms of the World Service, I mean, in a way, it's a different sort of body to the the BBC proper. I mean, most, most of my focus in the book is on domestic programming. And the World Service, I think, in some ways, produces some much stronger journalism. I mean, in a funny way, partly because it has a different audience, it has a different makeup of journalists, it has a different way of approaching journalism. It's also under a lot less political pressure. I mean, despite the fact that on one level, you would expect it to be more like an instrument of the British government. In fact, my limited experience of listening to the World Service is it does tend to offer more critical and more broad sort of perspectives. So I think it's a good example of that. The difference is, that basically it's not the world service hasn't been pressurized in the same way as some of the key news and current affairs pro and news programs which if you run one of those programs you cannot afford to ignore the political context in which the bbc operates well are you suggested that one of the things here is because that by definition the world service broadcasts the world it's usually dealing with subject matter which is less embarrassing to the ruling elite than those that journalists who work domestically mm. 
to a degree, but it's also not, it's just not a part of the BBC machine in the same way. It's kind of its own. Well, it's increasing, it is increasingly integrated. Yeah, but, but historically. I, I think, you yeah. Know, which, yeah, historically, I agree with you. But are you suggesting, therefore, that what is going on here, you have a view about the relationship between the top of the BBC and government and a dependency relationship, particularly at certain moments. But, you see, when I talk to Charles Moore, the former editor of the Daily Telegraph on this podcast, he is absolutely, totally convinced that what you have is a left liberal, he wouldn't use the word considerably, but leaning, an automatic, a, a pro-remain, left liberal leaning, mainly, I think, he suspects because the young workforce is rather younger, metro, on the whole metropolitan-based and so on. And so he would say that there's this total, as it were, gap between what people are talking about in the country and elsewhere and what metropolitan liberals think. And what you see and hear on the BBC is what metropolitan liberals think. Can you understand his perspective? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a long-standing perspective. I think he actually started a column called B-Watch, which was exactly making this argument and had been using some research from conservative think tanks. So this has been a long-standing argument from, from the right. I mean, it goes back to the earliest days of the BBC. But does it have any validity, do you think? Well, it's hard to say. I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. I think it's true that the BBC, certainly true that the BBC is um, a metropolitan organisation. If you look at the makeup of its staff, it wouldn't surprise me if they lean towards more sort of centrist or liberal perspectives. I think to a degree... Some of these debates about like the left and right bias, if you like, of the BBC. I mean, my perspective is a little bit at cross purposes here. You you have similar sorts of arguments come from people like Roger Mosey as well. They're really talking about like a sort of social, socially liberal perspectives. Now, my argument in the book isn't really about social issues. It's really about powerful interests in society, right? So the question isn't for me one of political partisanship or liberal or conservative in, in quite that sense. It's based on pretty long-standing research that finds that who gets to talk in, in BBC programmes, like the main news and current affairs programmes? What are the perspectives that tend to predominate in BBC discussions and debates? And it's very well established that those tend to be positions, people hold, holding positions of authority in society, people wielding social power. Those are the people who are able to dominate the conversations for obvious reasons. Right? Yeah, but, but I wonder whether that, you know, uh, if you want to find out about the, what, the strike, the railway strike, you tend to talk to the head of the trade union involved, the RMT on the union side, but on the operators on the other side, and you tend to talk to that and so on. Right. Now, see, I mean, the BBC has been trying to change the nature of its workforce, making sure it's more diverse in every sense. It is starting quite slowly to try and do something about the Oxbridge middle-class imbalance in, in that sense, slowly moving forward. But it's also uh, conducting these research into impartiality. And the one it did about published about two weeks ago, looking at the way in which uh, debt was covered and some things like that, betrayed something rather strange to me. I mean, you, you would read the report thinking initially it's going to say is it biased to the right or the left because it is about bias and impartiality. And actually what it says, there's a sort of lack of both a lack of self-confidence and a lack, frankly, of qualification for so many journalists to talk about some of these issues. And because they're not confident on the economy as they would be, say, on the sport or the arts, they tend not to question those in authority closely enough, not because of a bias, but frankly because they're not trained to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting report, right? And I, I think there's, the, I think there are more interesting points in there. What one thing I would say about this is that 
I mean, a big part of what the book is based on is research that I did about how the BBC changed and how its economics and business reporting changed, particularly from the 1980s onwards. And a lot of the conclusions that were reached at that time were broadly along the same lines, right? And it, it's what you've described and what you've talked about in the podcast before, which is a lack of interest or understanding of business and the economy amongst people who are, say, trained at Oxbridge in humanities or, or whatever. That was the picture in the 1980s that, that led to actually a big change in the BBC's reporting. They invested a lot of money and a lot of effort into shifting that. Now, I think your point about unions earlier was interesting as well, because what disappeared at that time was the industrial correspondents whose job it was to have a set of expertise and a set of sources in an area which now is is relatively poorly covered. And we find now that there's a lot of strikes and there's a need for the public to understand what's going on. Who do they approach? That's something, as I talked to Nick Jones, uh, former BBC industrial correspondent about this, of course, is true across the media. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's, it's true yeah. of the BBC, but across the media. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely right. Yeah, it was a process of change that, that shifted um, not only the BBC, but across the industry. At the BBC, people were just, you know, more or less forced out of their jobs and in, into other roles. In the case, I think Nick went to like uh, political reporting, but some people just uh, <laughs> were just sort of kicked out um, unceremoniously. And I, I discussed that in the book. The reason I mentioned this, actually, is that how you organise your resources within an organisation is going to influence how stories are reported and where people develop expertise and who has a particular interest in a particular area. So like, if you're the industrial correspondent, you're not the champion of organised labour or whatever you want to call it, but you have an interest in a certain area of society, let's call it, and you want to persuade your editor this is important and you want to get on air. So the structure of the BBC matters. Well, why is this important? Because we're definitely changing the workforce and making it more representative of British society generally is a good thing. And I think the direction of travel on the BBC there has, has been positive. But there are structural elements that you need to do. There are investments that need to be made. And these decisions are the kinds of things that influence how reporting is done. And it's not to do with like how good journalists are, where they stand on the political spectrum. It's beyond like individual biases. What investments do you mean? What you said investments should be made. What sort of investments? Well, we could maybe come to like broader questions of structural reform. But in this case, I'm giving the example of like, why don't we have more trade union correspondents at the BBC who are able to go to representatives of organised labour and be able to understand disputes and explain them to the public so people can have a sense of what's going on. If we don't have that, then the de facto response is for you to either go to let's say, economists or people in the city or other other experts. So the embedded sort of working practices will obviously influence how you understand stories. So, you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's very important that, that you have a high degree of economic literacy in, in business and econ- economics reporting. And so I, I think that's all positive And I agree with that. But it's not just about a personal lack of understanding. It's also to do with a certain kind of reporting culture which was developed actually before 2008 influenced how that was reported i mean we have been here before if you if you think back to how austerity was reported there's a lot of work on this the report that recently came out was focusing on fiscal policy right but we've had this problem before going back to the response to the financial crisis that led to austerity that's now being lamented in the financial times and in the times and elsewhere what so you're suggesting that basically there was a failure of bbc journalists in particular to challenge the assumptions behind that and partly because not particularly this political bias but because of perhaps a lack of confidence or knowledge or experience of wider economic viewpoints, so that the framing of it was extremely narrow in your view. 
Yes, absolutely. But the point I was going to lead on to was it's not just a lack of understanding of the issues. It's also the kinds of circles within which these journalists find themselves, right? So they're reflecting a particular type of conversation. And this was one of the other things that's mentioned in that report, which is that they're deferring to Westminster. And I think that's that's very well understood. Well, I mean, I agree absolutely with that. And I, I remember in the 19, when I, a long time, 40 years ago, talking to somebody called Sir Robin Day that most people probably don't remember, a brilliant interviewer. But he was very much in the view that the parameters of debate were decided by Parliament. Yeah. And that within that... You should be independent and tough, and he was tough. But essentially, if it was not being debated within Parliament, then it wasn't an issue in yep. his perspective. Now, that hangs over some people, but the other thing that's hanging, what has happened, I think, which is terribly important, is the expansion of the Westminster office at the BBC. And you have a, if, you know, if you're stuck as a news editor, you haven't got a story, they'll always give you one. Yep. So, imperceptibly, most issues are defined through parliament first yeah this was sort of foundational to the bbc's original way of doing politics right it was kind of the consensus that they reached in the very early days now what's slightly depressing about this is that the bbc's recognized for a long long time that it shouldn't do impartiality through the prism of westminster or political partisanship because most people don't see issues like that it's not what they want the bbc to do now in terms of like robin day i mean Nick Robinson has more or less offered a different version of this, which is basically, look, the job of a political correspondent, he's just a political correspondent, maybe you consider it to be more proper there, is to report what's going on in the corridors of power in in Westminster. This is how political journalism plays out. But I mean, as we've talked about with the economics reporting, it's something that bleeds into other areas of reporting. Clearly, that's problematic. And for a long, long time, the BBC was talking about, I think it had this rather like clumsy analogy, like the wagon wheel of impartiality or something. But basically, the underlining argument there... Yes, that was John Bridcott about, well, 15 years ago to try to redefine impartiality, if you like. Yeah. So, But what he was trying to do there is say, look, there's a whole range of different issues and ideas in society, and we need to reflect that very broad debate. And this was an assumption, really, that goes back to the 1960s. I mean, even as early as that, the BBC had kind of said, well politics and society is becoming more complex we need to be more representative of this whole range of perspective what was then called pluralism you know it becomes a sort of thrust of impartiality it's not so and so said this and so and so said this we need to help the audience understand what's going on in society and we can't do that for a political sort of balancing act and i i don't think many people actually if you sit them down and talk to them reasonably would disagree with that the, the problem becomes in what context does journalism take place? And that always seemed to drift back towards this centre of like of gravity of so-and-so says this, so-and-so says this. Now, this comes back to your question at the beginning of like, well, how is it that I see the politicised hierarchy at the top proliferating through the culture throughout the BBC? I mean, I think this is a good example of this, right? How this worked historically? I mean, let's, let's go back to like the Burt period, for example. Burt appointed these editors who weren't editors, but were like, you know, heading sort of, the leading figures in particular areas, the economics editor, the political editor, whatever, they were defining the tone of the BBC's coverage for the whole organisation. And you can see, like, if the political editor does things in a certain way, the economics editor does things in a certain way, that just sets the tone for the way the story is reported. Well, can I challenge you there? I'm not a great defender of John Burke, but what it seems to me we was doing there, he recognised that the BBC was underpowered in terms of industrial and economic coverage, certainly financial coverage and so on. He was not impressed by the expertise within the building. He appointed people largely from outside of the building to inform that. The trouble with Bert was he tended to be very prescriptive 
And having done that, he tended to think there was one particular answer to a problem in terms of a range of problems. But I think the intention was to actually just improve the quality, as it were, the literacy of BBC journalists. Whether it defined the arguments in the way you suggested, I'm not, to be honest, not sure. Well, I'm not saying that Bert told people what to report, although, you know, there, there are incidents of obviously of direct <laughs> he did occasionally, he did occasionally. Yeah, but that's not the important point. The important point is that in a relatively hierarchical organisation like the BBC, a certain sort of common sense can take hold. People talk about groupthink or whatever in big organisations, but actually it's, it's much more straightforward in hierarchical organisations. You know, I work in a university, it's not so different. Like, the policy is clear and it proliferates down in different ways. The people at the bottom may not like it. They may have their own way of like resisting it or, or tweaking it or doing things differently. But at the top and the middle, that's where the real action takes place. And in terms of the journalism, the bit, the journalism which has big audiences, it's a relatively small number of people. I mean, you talked about the diversity of the workforce. If you look at, for example, the big household names at the BBC and their income. Now, I know journalists aren't usually very comfortable talking about this, but it's, it's socially relevant to look at the sort of strata of society from which people are drawn, not just whether they went to Oxford, which is like, you know, often the focus of the Daily Mail. And a lot of this stuff does come from the right. <laughs> Every time these lists come out of how much people get paid, the Daily Mail and the rest of them will be doing these lists about these lobbies who get paid 200, you know, £240,000 a year or whatever. It's worth noting that like £180,000 a year puts you in the 1%. That's the 99th percentile, right? So remember the Occupy movement with its 1% and 99%. Yeah, but I have to say, you are talking about the very top and the presenters, and you can argue about that. And I'm happy to tell you that I was paid £1,000 for doing the feedback programme. I did that for 30000 a year, and I was very grateful for that. A lot of journalists, however, waiting for the BBC get nowhere near these larger figures. Sure. And those people are the 1% of the BBC, right? So that's what I'm saying. It's very important to recognise this, that like the BBC is a large organisation, and if you want to think of things in hierarchical sense, the BBC People at the lower end, in my view, tend to do more interesting and more critical work. But the problem is they tend to be more under-resourced. So, for example, if, when I've done stuff on BBC Radio, it tend to have a very free, very sympathetic, very interesting conversations. I think it would be very difficult to have on a Today programme for lots of reasons, partly because the politicians listen to the Today programme and it's still part of that very insular world. There's a lot of political pressure on the Today programme. If, if something goes wrong... Sorry to interrupt, but what I'm, what I'm uh, intrigued about is you, you made a comparison with your own university and I wonder whether you're just, you're just analysing if you like, faults which are common to all organisations, of which the BBC is one, or you're saying that there is a particular problem the BBC, and this takes me on to the question of whether you think it can be reformed, because you said towards the, the end of the book, you know, what sort of, I think correctly, forget the institution for a moment, start with the first question, which is what sort of public service broadcasting or media do we want? Then the second question is how do you organise and the third question is how you pay for it. But what sort of organisation do we want? Can the BBC become the organisation you want or do we have to start again in the pursuit of the best sort of public service media? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I ha often have conversations with people who are extremely sceptical about the BBC and basically see it as being beyond redemption. And I absolutely don't agree with that. And I spend a lot of my time... People see me as like being a critic of the BBC. I mean, because, you know, they can just Google me about Tom Mills, OK, myth of a public service. 
you know, I'm not really. I'm, I'm summarising what the social scientific data and historical work tell us about what kind of institution the BBC is. I think what the BBC should be doing and what it claims to do and sometimes does do is a really important social function. So the question becomes, how can it perform that function? Now, it's not just that the BBC is a big organisation. Of course, all big organisations have these kind of certain issues with which the BBC will share. There are particular specific problems that I highlight in the book two of which we discussed at the beginning, right? The principal ones, you said the license, the funding mechanism, and the political appointees at the top, all of that needs to be addressed. And I don't think any of this should be remotely controversial. I saw recently, um, I can't remember who it was, somebody from the BBC saying how difficult it was to explain to people abroad that the chair of the BBC is appointed by the government, because the BBC, of course, has this like cherished reputation for independence. I would like to see a genuinely independent BBC, one which doesn't have any political appointees at the top, one which has a guaranteed source of public funding, is put on a statutory footing so that the BBC doesn't have to keep going back to the government to renew its charter. Now, there's other things I would like the BBC to do as well, but that is literally just giving us a BBC which is able to do what it says it does, which is to be independent... Yeah, but Tom, the big question there is to whom it is, is it accountable? I was very impressed when Richard Sharp went last week in front of the House of Commons. He was given a very hard time. Now, the MPs don't have the right to fire him, but they have a right to bring him in, cross-examining for two hours. It's a very tough session because ultimately the BBC is accountable to Parliament. If you make it too independent... There's a lot of arrogant people around who would love to run the BBC and not pay much attention to other people, and you wouldn't get the sort of democratically accountable organisation you want. So if you want to make it more independent of government, which I understand, and I think most people would agree, do you make it more accountable in some way to Parliament, or do you have another way in which you think it can be made accountable? Otherwise, it becomes an arrogant monopoly. Of course, you have to have forms of accountability. I mean, I, I think that's accepted by everybody. Maybe maybe not everyone in the BBC. Maybe they'd like to just have an easy life and, and do whatever they want. If you take public money, then you should be accountable to the public and we need to think about the constitutional mechanisms for that. You shouldn't be accountable to the government. That just doesn't make any sense. So you have to have forms of accountability which are one step removed from the government. That would include, in my view, Parliament. I think it's right and proper that the chair of the BBC should appear before MPs and and speak to select committees. I think also... Really, the accountability should be to the audiences, not to the government and not to Parliament. And we'd have to think about what those kinds of mechanisms of accountability look like. Now, it has to be ultimately forms of democratisation. Now, what you don't want is to have a politicised BBC, an apex of the BBC that remains politicised, but it's politicised through some sort of you know, referendum type process, which then replaces the forms of sort of backroom appointments, which we currently have, because then we just have sort of publicly appointed Richard Sharp of one political persuasion or another. So I think what you have to do is you have to make the BBC much more devolved. And then the forms of accountability, in my view, should be localised. And the board, which I think could be a combination of um, perhaps could be elected by staff, or you could have maintain some sort of non-executive role as well, should really just have oversight. So they shouldn't really be responsible for journalistic or cultural production. I would want to see all of that devolved. What does the local accountability look like? I think that's going to require a certain amount of experimentation. Others have written about this 
My friend Dan Hind has been writing about democratisation of public media for decades now. Ideas like public commissioning. The BBC itself has experimented in this area. So when it was getting into a lot of hot water over its Brexit coverage, for example, it brought in audience panels, which is, you know, you get in what is essentially amounts to a focus group and develop your story and your approach to a particular type of issue in dialogue with people who are representative of the public. So I think those are the kinds of experimentations I would want to see. Now, because the the basic problem we've had with public service is that you have this patrician model, which is what I describe in quite a lot of detail in the book. And then you've got the kind of marketized model. And the idea of the marketized model, of course, is that as soon as we have consumer producer relationships, that will introduce forms of essentially sort of quasi democratic accountability. But that just doesn't happen in practice. And it hasn't happened. So to me, It's a big question, the one you're answering. It's not one that we can cover in enough detail in this short podcast, but that is the question for public service broadcasting. And if I may, there's one other fundamental principle that I think is really important, and that's universality. The whole rationale for the BBC, the reason why we have to have public service, the reason why we have to have publicly funded journalism and culture, is it's to do with the ability for everybody to equally participate in society. If you commercialise media then inevitably you have to um, charge for the content in one way or another, or you have advertising. They both lead to problems. So you've got to have universal provision. And if you have universal provision, you've got to have forms of public accountability. And that's what needs to be worked out. But I've never read any serious defence of the way that the BBC is currently arranged. I mean, even the BBC is moving away from the idea of the licence fee. So I think there's big open questions. Yeah, the problem is that it's easy to look at the limitation of the licence fee, but more difficult to find an alternative, but that's for another day. Tom Mills, thank you very much indeed, and Tom's book is called The BBC Myth of a Public Service, and it's well worth reading, and in historical terms, there are some hair-raising incidents for you to look into. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Please do support our journalism. There's no licence fee to fund us, and it's only £1.99 per month. Granted, not as good value as the licence fee, but we do hope you still think we're worth it. Uh, You can contribute easily by using our link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at rogerbolton at mastodonapp.uk. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. The podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>